1: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, everybody. I'm
2: Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's wonderful to be with you. I've been on vacation. I had some great substitutes last week. I appreciate it. Who is it? Liz Peake and David Bonson and my brother Steve Moore. So I will thank them. And, uh,. This coming week, starting Tuesday after Labor Day, I will be back on the uh, Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Cudlow. I'm raring to go. Got some great rest, playing some tennis, reading books, going to 12-step meetings. How about that? Even went to church. <laughs> I'll go to church this weekend also. Anyway, we will be back. That's nine 4 to 5 p.m., 4 to 5 p.m. every day. Monday through Friday, box business name shows Cudlow, and right here you can live stream us on the internet. It's the Larry no, it's LarryCudlowShow.com. I don't think there's a the LarryCudlowShow.com live stream us all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. Our following in the solar system continues to grow. The ratings in the solar system are very very strong. And I will begin with this sort of odd, really weird, odd discussion of one Joe Biden, who currently holds the office of President of the USA, who slammed, gave a couple of speeches, very goofy speeches, if you ask me. But anyway, the idea in his speeches. This past week was MAGA Republicans, all Republicans, Trump Republicans. They're all bad, evil, trying to destroy uh, democracy. Trump MAGA is a threat to the country, a threat to democracy, etc., etc. Standing for all kinds of bad things. And then the weird thing, really weird thing, is that yesterday... Uh, he was taking some questions and he walked it back. He walked the whole thing back. I'm reading the New York Post this morning. President Biden on Friday walked back some of the fiery political rhetoric from his primetime speech in Philadelphia a night earlier, denying that he attacked former President Donald Trump's voters despite having repeatedly slammed MAGA Republicans in the address. I don't consider any Trump supporters to be a threat to the country, Biden said, blah, blah, blah. And then he went on to say, I do think anyone who calls for the use of violence fails to condemn violence. Yeah, well, Trump voters, MAGA voters, are not in favor of violence either. Okay, and probably the vast majority of them, the vast, vast majority of them, uh, did not like what happened in the Capitol on January 6th. But then again, in the riots in 2020 and 2021, I never heard Biden speak out against the violence. His supporters, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, defund police, I mean, crime is rampant across the country. All that's violence. An attempted murder of Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh. I didn't hear him say anything about that. Constant harassment of Supreme Court justices against the law, I might add. His Justice Department never took any action. And of course, his Attorney General. Merrick Garland called parents attending school board meetings domestic terrorists. I mean, come on, this violence thing, this attack on Trump. 20, I'm sorry, 74 million people. And uh, Biden just decided to attack them all in Labor Day. Really the beginning of the formal campaign for the midterm elections, I suppose. But it was really a goofy speech. And now he's walking it back. He doesn't know what he's doing. Trump called him nuts, said he must be nuts. Well, I'll leave that to Mr. Trump. Look, everything Biden is attempting to do, these speeches, the Mar-a-Lago raid, the January 6th committee, everything he tries to do is to keep Trump off the ballot in 2024. And they're trying to make the midterm elections this November all about Trump. Not the high inflation rate, mind you. Not the economic downturn slump, mind you. Not the crime wave, mind you. Not these crazy woke teachers, critical race theory, teaching five-year-old kids about gender and sex identification. Nah, don't talk about that. Not the student debt forgiveness cancellation election year vote buying which is immensely unpopular not the so-called uh, inflation reduction act which is immensely unpopular by the way this student debt loan is now estimated to be between get this 500 billion and 1 trillion dollars will cost the government over the next 10 years 500 billion to 1 trillion so that 70% of the American population will be financing the loans of 30%. More or less, those are the numbers. Incredible story. He doesn't want to talk about the fact that we have now learned unearthed conversations between White House staffers and social media, Google, Facebook, Twitter, where White House staffers told them do not print anything against Anthony Fauci or their COVID policies, which were dismal failures, shutting down schools, shutting down economies, the authoritarianism behind that. We've uncovered that. also, do not print, this was the FBI calling social media, do not print the Hunter Biden laptop computer fiasco. Or even talk about the Hunter Biden uh in bed with China, with Ukraine, with others or using his position as the uh, first son to uh to gather up money. No, don't talk about that. Don't talk about the crazy green New deal, which is really the most authoritarian planning, central planning jamming down our throats the idea, which has been discredited again and again, and we will talk about it on the show today, the idea that we can end hydrocarbons. We can end fossil fuels. As electricity, by 2035, no no fossils for electricity, which will destroy the economy, shut down the country. All right, No gas-powered cars in California, Washington, Oregon, and Probably other states to follow. Probably these crazies in the Northeast will do the same thing, these crazy Democrats. No discussion of that. No more fossil fuels by 2050. I mean, they're just using their central powers, their regulatory powers, to jam down a planned economy which is destined to fail. In 20 months, a little less than two years, We've gone from a boom to a bust, from price stability to record high inflation. It's an incredible failure. So so Biden calls Republicans semi-fascist, whatever that means, semi-fascist. The reality is Biden is operating a socialist policy. It isn't even semi-socialist anymore. Again, through the regulatory state, through massive government spending and subsidies and deficit finance. And the Green New Deal is at the center of it. Through, and this is an important Labor Day theme, through government subsidies that make it pay not to work. We will have... Senator Phil Graham, former Senator Phil Graham, will be on. He's got a new op-ed out on this. He's got a new book coming on this. Degrading work. This is Labor Day weekend, and Biden policies are degrading work. They're saying to the middle class, to working folks, to blue collars, to typical families, you can work as hard as you want but you're only going to make about as much money as the bottom 20% or the lower incomes because the government is subsidizing them not to work. All right? That itself is remarkable, and I want to highlight that here on Labor Day. It's a tragedy, an absolute tragedy. And then again, speaking of socialists and central planners and authoritarians, let us not forget... That the progressives want to pack the Supreme Court, want to end the filibuster, want to add several new states like Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico to Congress, and would love to pass an election law that would override the election laws of all the 50 states, which, by the way, would include no voter ID, and um, don't have to show up to vote, mail-in ballots harvesting ballots. That is authoritarian. I won't call that fascism. I will just call it socialism. Modern socialism, which is using the regulatory state, the regulatory apparatus in the Washington swamp, inside a bureaucracy which is immune to firing, using that to shove down our throats this new planned socialist economy. That's what they've done. So they can call the 74 million Trump voters, of whom I am one. I served in the Trump administration proudly. As the director of the National Economic Council, you know that. I served proudly. I'm not saying we were perfect, but we delivered prosperity. We delivered prosperity we delivered incentives to work and invest and take risks we believed in rewarding success not punishing it we believed we believed that business large and small is essential we believed that lower taxes particularly corporate tax cuts again on the big and the small business they're the ones that produced less inequality, lower poverty, higher real wages for minorities, blacks, browns, Asians, women, and everybody else in this country. It's called growth and prosperity. The Bidens can call Trump voters any name they want. They can call Trump any name they want. But what they are doing is socialism. What we stood for and continue to stand for is freedom, a free economy, a free education system, allowing parents to run the schools, a closed border, stopping the drugs and the sex trafficking and the crime. We believe in backing the blue line of the police. We believe in tough district attorneys. We believe in fair, legal immigration. We believe in a strong foreign policy. Not the catastrophe of Afghanistan and the ongoing war in Ukraine. And we believe in free energy production and investment, all of the above. Coal, oil, natural gas, nuclear, and yes, wind and solar, and other renewables. We believed in energy dominance, not begging for oil to Venezuela, and Iran, and the Saudis. That's called freedom. A free economy. That's the American tradition. I say this on Labor Day because the cavalry is coming. We will return to a system Of economic freedom, personal freedom, freedom of speech, and religion. That is our mantra. Those are our policies. That's the 74 million that voted for Trump. Not a socialist state, which Joe Biden is sponsoring. Joe Biden and his far-left radical allies. And that will help. A return to freedom will help the American working folks and the average families who get up in the morning and suit up and come to work and get paid based on their merit and productivity, not government handouts, not government dictates, not government subsidies, not the government telling you what car to drive, what light bulb to use, What shower to turn on? Freedom on Labor Day. Keep hope. Keep faith. Keep optimistic, all right? I am the quintessential optimistic. This Biden business is going to slowly go away. The first blow will be in the midterm elections. The cavalry's coming. On Labor Day, I say all this with the greatest faith in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm Kudlow. We will be right
1: back after this. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow, great to be with you. So just to mention a little bit about Labor Day and the labor force, um, there are now just short of 160 million uh, Americans working. They are employed. We had a pretty good jobs number. Um, wages are rising nicely, which is great. I love higher wages. I don't believe they by themselves are inflationary. Inflation comes from deficit spending and money printing, okay? The workforce is the workforce. And uh, average hourly earnings uh, for production workers is up 6.1%. And if you tack on hours worked, then they're up 9.4%, which actually actually is above the inflation rate, which is about 8.5%. Last month or two, we've seen uh, workers working above inflation. So real wages are, you know, they're rising. They are rising. I hope it continues. I'm a little skeptical, but I hope it continues. And I want to say this. Labor Day is not just about labor unions. Labor Day is about the entire workforce, about 160 million Americans working. The unions are only a tiny sliver of that. Okay? In the private sector, only 6% of the workforce is unionized. And if you tack on government unions, it's still only about 9% of the entire workforce. So it's just a small sliver. Now, the Biden administration, which is pro-union, is doing everything it can to unionize using the National Labor Relations Board, collaborating and cooperating with local unions to try to turn non-union shops into union shops. They've had some limited success in a very small way. Uh, For example, Starbucks is being used. And Starbucks, let's see, 200 unionized Starbucks location in the U.S., 200. It's picked up, covering 5,300 workers. But it's just a small sliver because there are 34,000 Starbucks locations. So they've unionized 200. And there are 380,000 employees. So they've unionized 5,300. It's still small. It's still small. And the point about unions, look, I believe in free choice, worker choice. Here's the deal. Why should workers have to pay unions out of their wages large dues, which the union bosses then take and invest in all manner of left-wing causes and all manner of left-wing democratic politicians? Why? They should be free to choose. Workers should have their own freedom. And so many, and nowadays, these union leaders are socialists. They don't do anything to help unions. They don't do anything to help work. They don't do anything to help jobs or the businesses that create jobs. Remember this, folks. You can't have a strong workforce unless there's a strong business to hire the workers. But if you're taxing and regulating, and and by the way, Green New Dealing, which is going to lay off millions of workers if it ever succeeded, they're working, the union bosses are working against the workforce with their dues. So that's a big problem. The dues go to left-wing politicians. And this is something to be quite wary of. Union uh, unionization has been declining, uh, frankly, for about 50 or 60 years. But I'm saying, in the private sector, it's only 6%. Workers should be able to work and keep their wages. That's key point. And nationwide, we now have 27 right-to-work states. Only 23 unionized states. So that's worker freedom. And on this Labor Day, I just want to proclaim my strong support for worker freedom. If you want to join a union, fine. But beware that a big chunk of your wages will be gobbled up for left-wing causes that will do harm to your future working career. Anyway, we will pursue this problem, the erosion of self-reliance and worker pride and labor force participation. Our next guest on the other side of the break is Senator Phil Graham, who has a book on this very subject. I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. Please stick around. Happy Labor Day weekend.
1: From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We bring in a great friend and mentor, Senator Phil Graham, former senator from Texas, AEI Visiting Scholar, and he's got a new book out uh, a couple weeks, released September 15th. He will be on the TV show, and he'll be back on radio to talk about it. The book is called The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. And um, he teases his book with an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this week called Income Equality, Not Inequality, is the Problem. And he concludes basically... By eroding self-reliance, worker pride, and labor force participation, government-generated income subsidies, that kind of equality undermines the very foundation of American prosperity. And, of course, I think he's completely right. Anyway, Phil Graham, welcome back, sir.
3: Thank you, Larry.
2: So these subsidies have actually made the lower quintiles – almost equal to the middle quintile, and that is a problem. The subsidies are undermining work effort. This is a workfare, work requirement, government intervention. Tell
3: us more about your thesis, because I like it. I love it, actually. Well, first of all, I started noticing 10 years ago that there was something wrong with American statistics. Uh, the Census Bureau puts out data on income. The Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out data on consumption. The bottom 20% of income earners have for 20 years consumed roughly twice what their income was. And so you ask yourself, how is that possible? And then when you go back, you find out that the census made a decision in 1947, to count only cash payments as income. And so in 1947, with the state of statistics, that made sense, and it was a good approximation. But come 1965, with a war on poverty, virtually every new government program was a payment in kind. It gave people food stamps. Uh, it paid their medical bills. It paid their rent. And so where we are today is that we have about $2.8 trillion of transfer payments. And the Census Bureau counts only $0.9 trillion as income to the people that receive it. Mm-hmm. And of and an equal problem is in comparing incomes, it doesn't deduct for taxes you pay. So uh, if you look at state, uh, local, and federal taxes, 88% of which are paid by the top 40% of income earners in America. Um, By not deducting income that's lost to taxes, money you never see, And comparing it to income where they're not counting two-thirds of all transfer payments to low-income people, the census says that the bottom 20% of American earners, as compared to the top 20%, the top 20% earn 16.7 or has 16.7% more income, but when you count all transfer payments, and you count all taxes, it's roughly four to one. Now, is that equal enough? Obviously, that can be debated in a free society, but there's a difference between 16.7 to one and four to one. And then the problem that the article mentioned last week is that We now have made over the last 50 years such a massive increase in transfer payments from about $9,700 to uh, over $45,000 a year going to the bottom 20% of income earners that we have for all practical purposes, when you add up all the transfer payments and you deduct taxes, Uh, we have equalized the income of the bottom 60% of American earners, especially when you adjust the household size. So what does that mean? That means that middle-income workers, roughly 90% of prime work-age persons in the labor market working, working twice as many hours for those that do work, earning significantly more, They're no better off than people who aren't breaking a sweat. Mm. And what has happened is, final point, in um, in 1967, when the war on poverty ramped up, 68% of all prime work age poor people worked. It's now down to 36%. Mm. And why is that the case? Because they're as well off not working as they would be working. And how can we blame them for not working? Mm. And, uh, of course, the American dream is based on participating in the market, uh, not participating in the government. And so they basically spent 50 years outside the economic mainstream of America. And while most Americans have seen dramatic progress, their progress is limited to how much government gives them. Um, and it's sick. grossly unfair. People resent it.
2: Yes, they do. And it's changing our politics. You write here, after transfer of payments and taxes, households... In the bottom 20% had an average income of, I'm going to call it, $50,000. It's $48,000. Call it $50,000. The average working-age household in the second quintile uh, had an income of almost the same, $50,000. But in the middle quintile, after taxes and transfers, they kept only $61,000. So you're right. There's no incentive here to work. Or let me say the war on poverty and the Great Society, which has grown and grown and grown. And, of course, Biden is doing the same thing. By the way, don't forget student loan forgiveness. Um, Exactly. There is very little incentive to work. What was your number, the participation rate for uh, what? This is the work age population. What is that, 25
3: to 54? It was 6. Fifty eight percent at the beginning of the war on poverty, when it ramped up spending in 67, 50 years later, uh, it's 36 percent. Wow. That's incredible. It is incredible.
2: That that explains a great
3: tragedy, too, uh, because how many of these people have real talent, could contribute, could lead productive lives? Mm. Uh, could get the happiness that comes from achieving something. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a great national tragedy, in my opinion.
2: Well, it is. And another point you're making here is, though, it's changing national politics. Oh, it's and changing it dramatically. I'm kind of, really? kind of breaking up just a little bit on your phone. Breaking up. No, not so good. You were going great guns, but now you're breaking up. All right, we're going to call him back. I'm calling back to get him back. So let me just continue. Uh, Phil Graham, we're going to talk about the politics of this when he comes back, because what you're getting here is welfare recipients and blue-collar workers are, to some extent, at war with each other. He writes, The justifiable resentment is the economic source of today's American populism. It is ravaging the increasingly unstable democratic political alliance between welfare recipients and blue-collar workers. It was building up in the 1980s with what was then called the Reagan Democrats, and it's fully manifested in the Trump blue-collar political base. It is now driving political realignment among Hispanic voters who are disproportionately middle-income earners. And then he concludes, by eroding self-reliance, worker pride, and labor for participation, government-generated income equality, that's the subsidies, undermines the very foundations of American prosperity. America, a democratic society won't knowingly tolerate it. Now, this is, you know, this is something that uh, I have been talking about for quite some while, the issue of workfare, or work requirements. In other words, America is a very generous nation, but probably overly generous. When workers are laid off, we help them out for a while. That's the safety net, the social safety net, and we saw a lot of that at the height of the COVID pandemic in 2020. Okay, workers because of the shutdown businesses and shutdown of schools and so forth. Businesses could not hire. We did the best we could with the payroll protection. Uh, We're going to talk about that later. But that was never meant to be permanent. It was never meant to be permanent. In 2021, when Biden passed the so-called American Relief Act, which launched this uh, big inflation that we're experiencing, it continued, and it continues to this day. We are paying people far too much not to work. It's welfare, as Phil said, Phil Graham said, it's food stamps, it's housing subsidies, it's, of course, student loans. All of these things, it is, of course, health care. All of these things provide significant assistance, as Phil Graham writes that basically makes the low end equal to the middle. And so, therefore, why go to work? Why sweat it? This is a big problem, and it is damaging the overall economy. We need more workers and productive workers to grow the economy and create greater opportunities. But if the government is paying you not to work, essentially, then we see this loss the labor force participation rate as Phil said among the middle class has dropped to 36%. That's very 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 bad. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll try to rehook with uh, Senator Phil Graham about this whole idea that income equality, not inequality is the problem, but the problem of the problem is the fact that a government socialist planning economy, which is what the Bidens represent continue their heavy subsidies and therefore damage worker pride and damage work. I'll take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll come back with uh, Senator Phil Graham on the other side.
1: From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. We are talking to former Senator Phil Graham of Texas, his new book, The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. It's coming out September 15th. He will be on the TV show with me, on set, which will be very exciting. Phil Graham is a longtime friend and mentor, and his article in the journal that we were talking about is why why government policies are eroding self-reliance, worker pride, and labor force participation. Phil, um, That number, I want to come back to that number. The participation rate among, uh, I guess you're talking 25 to 54, Um, if not, please correct me, but the participation rate of the heart of the working force has dropped, has plunged because of these government
3: subsidies. Yeah, and the bottom, the numbers are these, in the bottom 20% of income earners. What, mm-hmm. what statisticians call the bottom quintile. The labor force participation rate in 50 years among prime work age persons now, these are only work age people uh, that are not students, uh the labor force participation rate has fallen from 68% to 36%. Mm-hmm. And among the second quintile, the labor force participation rate has fallen by about 10%. And the obvious reason is the explosion in transfer payments uh, over that 50-year period from about $9,700 per household to over $45,000 per household. Mm. And as you were saying uh When I had been cut off, um, what has happened in the last two years with the explosion of programs is this problem has spilled into middle-income families. The transfer payments are now so large that we've had an effect on labor force participation rate among middle-income people. So uh, it's a very real problem, and it's, it's characteristic of what happens with these uh, societies that transfer massive amounts of income. Uh, we're becoming more and more and more like France, and as a result, we have labor force participation rates that are more and more like France. And you've got more and more people riding in the wagon, fewer people pulling the wagon. Right. And uh, what happens, progress stops. This
2: is is the failure to establish workfare or work requirements, is it not?
3: Yes. I think that we now, if we're going to provide this level of assistance, we're going to have to require for means-tested programs that able-bodied, work-age persons work mm. as a condition for getting the benefits. We did that for Aid to Families with Dependent Children. It's one of the great successes in the history of American government. Uh And we still have, among unmarried women with children, their labor force participation rate, is higher than people with similar incomes because of that program even though president obama waived most of the state work requirements and it's been overwhelmed by expansions in food stamps and other programs it still had a substantial effect uh, people went to work when they were required to go to work as a condition for getting the benefits Many of them made enough money to get also benefits and have never looked back.
2: But the American Relief Act uh, in March of 2021 uh, continued the COVID emergency stuff. So workfare has not been reestablished. Meanwhile, the subsidies in Biden's budget and legislation, the subsidies continue to rise. I mean, there's healthcare right. subsidies, right? There's housing subsidies.
3: As you said, there's food, food and nutrition stamps subsidies. dramatically. While unemployment is Probably down. Probably permanently.
2: Yeah. Go figure. Unemployment is down and food stamps
3: assistance is up. That shouldn't be. You don't have to pay your student loan. This was even before it was forgiven. Hmm. Um, so the net result of all of this is twofold. One, we've got a collapse in labor force participation rates affecting economic growth. It's affecting our ability to fund government, to fund earned entitlements like veterans benefits and Social Security. And people are beginning to react to it. The, the old Roosevelt coalition of blue-collar workers and government beneficiaries has collapsed. It was breaking down with Reagan's. Remember uh, Reagan's, uh, uh, Reagan Democrats? Uh, and uh, with uh, Trump, you had a wholesale defection of um, a middle income workers uh, from the Democrat Party. And now it's happening with Hispanics because the data clearly show now that the middle-income quintile, middle-class America is 21% more Hispanic than Mm. it would be if you pick people at random. Mm. Middle-income America is now very Hispanic Mm. because they're hard workers. They've succeeded in America. And uh, they're underrepresented in the bottom quintile because they don't take welfare in many cases. You were a Reagan Democrat. I was
2: a Reagan Democrat. Yep. I was. You were. You switched over. Um, What's this mean for the elections now, do you think? It's going to manifest itself. Well, I think we're waiting to
3: say, see, we're going to have a dramatic change among Hispanics. I'm confident of that. Hmm. It started in the last election. Uh, we're going to win at least one of the three districts in South, deep South Texas, Mm. a district that's 82% Hispanic. Uh, and we're going to win it basically, uh, a, a lady, um, Monica de la Cruz, who's running on the theme, I, I live the American dream. I want everybody to have it. Um, I want people to work and have, and, uh, and benefit from the productivity of America. Mm. I want to stop illegal immigration. I want to stop the spending and inflation. And it's selling uh, uh, to basically a Hispanic constituency.
2: Republicans better talk about this. I would say, Phil, they got to talk about this more.
3: You no, know, they do. Well, listen, uh, getting this election, if, if Republicans are going to win, uh, is and should be about what is happening in the American economy, the impoverishment of workers with inflation. Mm. Anybody that goes to the grocery store, the gas station, uh, that pays insurance on their house, um, they're seeing it everywhere. It is the issue. Now, the Democrats want to talk about Trump. They want to talk about Uh, papers that Trump had they want to talk about. Everything except what is affecting people sitting around their kitchen table. Mm Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the of the Wizard of Oz. It says, "Don't pay any attention to that guy behind the curtain. Pay attention <laughs> to this. Look at that. Look at that. Don't look at me. Look at that." Uh, and uh,
2: Senator Phil Graham, the best of the best, He's got this new book coming out, "The Myth of American Inequality: How Government Biases Policy Debates." Going to be out September fifteenth. He's going to be live on set with me. On the Fox Business Show, Cudlow. Folks, we're going to take a quick break and continue our discussion on the economy and the jobs report with former Assistant Treasury Secretary Mike Falkander. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right
1: back. Now, back to the Larry Cudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cudlow. This is the Larry Cudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you on Labor Day weekend. We're Talking about labor-related issues, we just had Senator Phil Graham on, why government subsidies are killing worker participation. Helping the lower incomes don't work. We get paid, don't work. Meanwhile, the middle incomes are stagnant. So go figure. It's not a good story. Anyway, I want to turn to my pal Michael Falklander, professor of finance at the University of Maryland. He was a former assistant secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy and uh, he's written a good piece here on how dumb it is for the bidens uh, to compare the student loan forgiveness which is just election year vote buying anyway anyway trying to compare the forgiveness of student loans with forgiving the ppp loans during the height of the covid crisis uh the paycheck protection programs so anyway uh mike fockerer welcome back you wrote a good piece here you know One thing I just want to say, um, you worked for Stephen Mnuchin, who was Treasury Secretary. I worked with Stephen Mnuchin. He's a very good friend of mine. In fact, it was a great collaboration for three years. I thought it was uh, Mnuchin's best thing, the best part of the COVID rescue plan back in, you know, early 2020 at the height of the pandemic. And it did save a lot of jobs. I think you say... 10 million, may have saved 10 million jobs. Uh, And it was always meant to be forgiven, provided that the money given to the small businesses were used to maintain payrolls. Now, the student loan idea is completely different. First of all, it started way before COVID. It's continuing now. It may cost up to a trillion dollars. So where do they come off comparing the two? That's what I don't understand.
4: Well, Larry, that's exactly what motivated me to write the piece is that, you know, we can go back to the beginning of COVID, and, you know, we were talking about what are we going to do to keep the economy afloat while we have all of these government-mandated shutdowns. And as you said, Secretary Mnuchin's key priority was we knew that the pandemic was going to differentially affect different types of businesses and that small businesses were going to be particularly hard hit and that we needed to support Main Street and make sure that the employees at these small businesses were going to be taken care of. We couldn't just throw even more millions of people onto the unemployment rolls. And so from the very beginning, when we were negotiating with Congress on the CARES Act, the paycheck what became the paycheck protection program, but something to support employment at small businesses was always a key priority. And we worked very hard with the Senate Small Business Committee, put together a program that said to employers, if you take out this money and you keep your employees on payroll. Don't throw them on the unemployment rolls. Keep them on payroll. Whatever you have them do, we will forgive that loan. As you said, from the beginning, it was the, the employers only take took out those loans because they knew they were going to be forgiven. The idea that there is any equivalency between keeping people employed during a pandemic versus going to school, to improve your own economic situation is outrageous. I mean, the result, and, and you know, as you said, I'm, I'm a professor at the University of Maryland. I'm, I'm very proud of the education that goes on among our students so that they are a much more productive contributor to our economy. And as a result of that education, they make more money, and they are therefore in a position to pay back the money that they borrow. And it's structured as such. It's a loan from the beginning because the primary person who benefits from it is the student borrower. There's, it's night and day to say that paying others during a pandemic versus taking out a loan to improve myself, that somehow there's some equivalency between them. And as I think you could tell of my tone in the piece, I was pretty outraged by the Biden administration making any comparison between the two.
2: It was the cheapest of cheap shots. That's all it was. Typical Bidenisms. Cheapest of cheap shots, Michael. And look, at the PPP worked. I mean, as you write, uh, the unemployment rate never did get above 20 percent. It peaked at less than 15 percent. And it really helped pave the way for the subsequent recovery. It worked. Yeah, I mean, I, I always used to kid, I used to tell this to I said, Stephen, this is your finest moment. This is your absolute. And I can remember call, I would go on, do media stuff virtually every day, okay, during this, uh, the worst of the COVID. And the second quarter, uh, you know, it was down 30-something percent, but it rebounded 30-something percent in the third quarter in no small part because of PPP. And I would call Stephen, like 7 in the morning we would talk, and I'd get the latest numbers. And Monica Crowley, who had a lot of this stuff, you know, in the public affairs uh, uh, department, I would get them That she would start emailing me on a daily basis. So I'd go out there uh, on CNN and Fox and CNBC and and say, here's what we're doing. It's a great city. Remember, people said we couldn't get the money out. Then they said it wouldn't work. Then they said it was going to be a continuous depression. None of that came true. And the That's PPP right. was part, you know, it was a big part of it. Mnuchin's finest hour. That's yes. what I always said. <laughs> you know, I, I, have some,
4: I have some lifelong memories I'll take away from Treasury.
2: One of them <laughs> yes. was
4: uh, the week that President Trump signed the CARES Act, You know, Mnuchin and my team met in the Secretary's conference room, and he walked in the room and he said, I just told the press the most outrageous thing a treasury secretary has ever said and that is that we're going to get a 350 billion dollar program up and running in a week. Yes. And the people in this room are the ones that are going to do it.
2: <laughs> right. it, was,
4: it was an incredible honor that he asked me to to be his deputy to to implement that program and I worked with him side by side every every day I was in his office many times a day getting that program up and running. I didn't running. know you were the de- I didn't know that.
2: That's very interesting. Oh, yeah.
4: And uh, and another proud moment. Uh, I don't know if you remember June fifth, uh, two thousand twenty. You know, the first Friday of the month, that jobs report came out. We were expected to have lost eight million jobs. Yep. During May of yep. twenty twenty, we instead regained two and a half million jobs. I remember,
2: the, yes, I remember that.
4: The forecast was off by more than ten million, and that morning. <laughs> I wrote an email to my Treasury team and, and the senior folks over at SBA, and I said, The people on this email chain deserve credit for today's jobs report. It is because we got PPP up and running in a week that, that Americans across our nation were able to get back to their employers. And, and as you said, that's what facilitated that V shaped recovery. that we realized in the third quarter.
2: Remember, I I was out there selling it on Pebble Beach constantly all day. That was a great day. You are absolutely right. That was a great day. And I do think that had a lot to do with the V-shaped recovery. I really do. And, of course, the naysayers, you know, guys on the left, hated it because it was working. But the student loan thing, Mike, is, look, that's almost in perpetuity. And you're not getting rid of loans. You're going to be back to it, 1.6 or 1.7 trillion loans in half a dozen years. And I noticed, interestingly, Penn Wharton model is saying this thing could ap- actually cost us a trillion dollars. And this is a case where the have-nots are paying for the haves, which is very unjust.
4: It really is, because if you look at that Penn Wharton report that they put out, they've got the income distribution on who is going to benefit from it. And approximately 70 percent of the benefit goes to the top three income quintiles. Yeah. So we it's, it's normally you would think that we would put in if we were going to provide additional fiscal support to the economy, which is you and I have already talked about this economy does not need more demand stimulus. Right. You know, but but if you were to do it, the idea that you would pr- target most of the benefit to the top 60 percent of income recipients just seems a bizarre form of fiscal support. And then couple that with the other piece you just said, which is we got zero student loan reform out of this. Mm. So we're just going to be back here a few years from now, if not worse, because what you just told parents and college students is don't bother tapping your 529 plan. Don't take that second job. Instead, take out a student loan because we're going to have the government relieve it. Why is that? And so we're just going to have people take on even more debt. Colleges and universities are going to see that there's just an increase in support for student loans. They'll, yeah. they'll have even less reason to curb their costs and keep tuition costs low. And so, yes, we're going to be right back here because there's no solution to it. And it's just a pre-election giveaway, yeah. which is why you know the, the final line of, of my op-ed says, you know, if you want to contrast it, DPP was about saving more than 10 million American workers and keeping them employed. The only people that Biden is looking to keep employed with this student loan bailout is his Democrat members of Congress.
2: You know that the student loan forgiveness or cancellation is financing higher tuitions. That's that's what's going to happen here. It's giving them leverage for higher tuitions and higher college costs. It's. It's it's going to achieve everything that we don't want to achieve, and to compare this to the successful uh, paycheck protection program is just insanity. Michael, I got to leave it there. You're terrific, great piece, appreciate it very much, folks. We'll take a quick break. Uh, the side of the break, I want to talk about the midterm elections with ACE pollster John McLaughlin. Lots in the media saying the Republicans have lost their mojo. I don't think they have. I'm actually, Rasmussen Reports just uh, put out their latest polling on this. The GOP still has a five point lead in the generic poll. But anyway, Ace Polster, John McLaughlin, up next. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back.
1: From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Cudlow Show.
2: All right, folks, I'm Larry Cudlow. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show, Ace Polster and dear friend, John McLaughlin. Uh, CEO of McLaughlin & Associates, John and James McLaughlin, still plugging away after all these years. So, John, um, I'm reading another one here. Hang on a second. I'm just seeing the Washington Times, which is a conservative newspaper, battle for control of U.S. Senate, a toss-up after Democrats' summer rebound. Then I got another one, John. Uh, uh, Rick Scott, Senator Rick Scott of Florida, who I love, his dear friend, he uh, wrote an op-ed, he's ripping Mitch McConnell, calling it treasonous that McConnell's wing of the GOP is trashing Republican Senate candidates. I don't know why Mitch McConnell is doing this. I mean, I don't get it all. He should be out there leading the charge, not being uh, a big downer. And your um latest poll shows a forty five forty five now John Rasmussen reports this morning that poll is still giving Republicans five points plus five in the um in the generic ballot. You're at forty five forty five So what's going on here? What's the truth, John McLaughlin Well,
5: it's sixty six days out, and by the way you' you're you're looking at probably three weeks when the early voting starts in places like Minnesota and uh uh right they're, they're, you know the democrats really beat us on the early voting uh 2 years ago and they're they're coming back to do it again but I, I will tell you that uh you know when you look at it you know you you see the ads you watch the political uh you know uh the political back and forth you know you you were around like i was in 1994 when do you know we took the house and we did the contract for america that percolated all summer and uh, um, in September, I delivered a poll to Newton the House leadership in 1994, saying, "You know, you don't, you shouldn't compromise on Hillary Care. You're up seven points on the generic. We've never seen that before. We're going to take the house. It's going to be a landslide." And we took the Senate. Now we were up five points last month. Rasmussen reports the way they ask it, they also have a column for other, and they get like five, six points for other. We don't have that. We just force it between the two parties, hmm. and. What's amazing about the thousand likely voters that we had that we wrote about this week on Monday, 67 percent of all voters say the country's on the wrong track. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden had a 55 percent disapproval rating. And after his speech the other day, which was a debacle, if you Mm -hmm. if we ever gave President Trump a speech like that, Mm -hmm. if Stephen Miller wrote a speech like that and Vince and Tony Dole and those guys, you would have been appalled. That was not a presidential speech. That was political, and it was horrible. I wish the networks had broadcast it. But he has a 55% disapproval rating, and you have 57% of all voters say the, the economy's in recession. They say it's getting worse, not better, 60 to 34. Very different than when you were running the economy, President Trump. 43% of all Americans say they are struggling to make basic ends meet because of inflation. 43%, this is America. Thirty nine percent saying they're not struggling, but they've had it's had a significant impact on their finances. Only 19 percent are saying it hasn't impacted. them. The Republicans are not taking it to the Democrats. What's amazing about that poll is the Mar-a-Lago FBI raid, et cetera, all that. Trump takes Biden on. And the fact that 69 percent of all Republicans want Trump to run again, if he runs again, they say they'll support him 84 to 12 in a field of, like, 13 candidates. Trump comes at 55 percent. DeSantis only 15. Trump is leading Biden in these, among these 1,000 likely voters, 49 to 45, hmm. and our generic ballot is tied. Where are all the ads morphing the Democrat candidates for Senate and House into Biden? How, into into Biden. Biden.
2: Into Biden. Yes. That's Everyone. the whole thing. I keep telling uh, my pal Leora Levy here, and she's doing it. She's running against Richard Blumenthal in Connecticut. Blumenthal is Biden. He's the Joe Biden of Connecticut. I mean, I think in every state, whoever it is, is the Joe Biden of that state. Uh, I think this is your number. 62% believe we're in recession. 27%... uh, approve of his handling of the economy 27%. Yes, 27 28 percent approve of his handling of immigration So I mean, come on the cavalry is coming but the cavalry needs a stronger message that's your point isn't it well right and and specifically in new york blumenthal
5: is vulnerable i told yeah. her in the primary blumenthal only has 45 percent of the vote it, Voters in Connecticut, when somebody knew 47 to 41, Biden has a 54 percent disapproval in Connecticut. And he has disapproval in New York. But why aren't we taking it to them on policy? It's not just that they're they're with Biden. Think of the policies they voted for. They voted for 87,000 IRS agents. And Mm -hmm. this poll says Americans disapprove 50 to 37. Where's the ads? Mm -hmm. Where are the ads going after them for inflation, for spending? Where are the ads showing... That people are suffering. I mean, literally, you have stories. I, I was talking to somebody in Texas the other day where they did uh, the Jenny Collins. She's the AFP director for uh, 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 in Texas, and they're having gasoline giveaways. That that in effect, people can buy gas. They'll take over a gas station. You can buy gas for the price of gas when Joe Biden was president. For like uh, when he became president, two dollars thirty-eight cents a gallon. Jenny said people are coming in saying we haven't filled up our gas tank in a year. Mm. And because of you today, I can afford it. Because I was deciding between food for my kids and gas to drive to work. Mm. I mean, this is America. We're, why aren't the Republicans telling these stories?
2: It, you know, it, we, it's had, just amazing. we had uh, Senator Phil Graham on talking mm-hmm. about how all the government subsidies have increased the low end, the bottom 20 percent quintile enormously, but meanwhile, the middle-income people, after taxes, uh, have not benefited at all. They've been uh, stagnant. So the issue, John, is workfare and work requirements, because we're paying people not to work. I think that's a big issue. He mentioned blue collars, but he also mentioned Hispanics, who are now middle-class income earners, and they're furious that uh, their tax burdens and inflation burdens have stopped it out. Now, John, what's up with this uh, Rick Scott versus Mitch McConnell uh, argument? Because I think, you know, Rick Scott tried to put out his own plan, um, and I thought it was pretty good. I I think he was uh, overboard on taxes, but he's since amended that. That's the kind of contract with America that he wants for the senators to run on. McConnell uh violently disagreed and then mcconnell keeps coming out and saying all these weak senate candidates uh, who are trump candidates are going to cause us to lose seats and you know it's a 50-50 race w- why is mcconnell doing that and isn't rick scott right
5: well this is uh, first of all that's inside the beltway nonsense when people are out there suffering our voters want to come and vote they want to vote these democrats out our friend newt gingrich who we've done work for for his uh, American Majority project, yep. we did polling and Republicans, they're, they're, and we put it. We it's on his website and and uh, but we 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 basically asked them if they're more likely to vote for Republicans for uh, uh for Congress on twenty four issues and guess what, it, it was like it was overwhelming. We thought it would be de- depressing, but you've got like you've got uh forty four percent of all voters agree with Republicans on 20 or more issues and a lot of them are work fair. They're, they're uh, you know, protecting the tax cuts that, that mm-hmm. you did with President Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and listen to this. A Republican candidate, more likely to vote for him, who believes the best way to combat inflation, improve the economy, make things more affordable is to put money back in the pockets of workers and families for tax relief mm-hmm. and creating jobs with better salaries. 70% more likely.
2: Mm-hmm. It's,
5: uh, and and there's, there's 62% of the voters agree with the Republicans on 15 or more issues. There's another 13% that are persuadable. There's only 25% that are these big government socialists that you and Newt keep talking about. Mm -hmm. We'll never get them. But if we run on the issues, it will be a landslide.
2: We just can't. We have to take it to them on these issues. All right. I got it. You're right. Ace Polster, John McLaughlin, folks. Other side of the break, we're going to talk about the insanity of California. Forbidding gasoline-powered cars and why this whole Green New Deal, if it ever goes through, will just destroy the American economy. With Mark Mills from the Manhattan Institute, I'm Larry Kudlow. Folks, we will be right back.
1: Now back to The Larry Kudlow Show.
2: All right, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We go to Mark Mills, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and uh, Forbes columnist and um, ace climate change analyst. Mark Mills, welcome back. Here's probably my favorite story now. I've been on vacation all week, but I do scan the headlines and stuff. Uh, The state of California under Gavin Newsom has said in, in 10 years... No more internal combustion engine cars. No more gasoline powered cars. Okay. Yeah. I think, what, 2035. Okay, that's great. Then, a few days later, comes a new announcement that says uh, electric vehicles, EVs, cannot be charged because there's an electricity shortage. <laughs> now, yeah. I, you got to help me on this. On the one hand, they say we have to have all these EVs. But on the other hand, they say, "Well, you can't charge them because there's not enough electricity." Can you help me with this? Can you sort this out for me? Because it sounds like the <laughs> stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> you, you, you just you just can't make this
6: stuff up. I mean, no, you can't. And of course, that that it's no coincidence that uh, Governor Newsom signed legislation to extend the life of the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant mm. because he was doubtless told behind closed doors by the grid grid operator, they don't produce electricity, they just keep the lights on They operate, that if you took the Abla Canyon offline, you would not only not charge EVs at inconvenient times, there would be lights out events for California regularly. So, you know, it's just um, I've used, I've hesitated to use the word delusion in my writing about this uh, idea of transitioning away from hydrocarbons, but I did in a new report because It is delusional. It's dangerous because Europe is suffering the advanced stages of the delusion with its dependencies on Russia and the spiking prices there. You know, the grid would have to roughly double in size uh, to supply the energy for transportation by shifting from oil and gas to electricity, just never mind how you make electricity. And no one has any plans to double the size of the electric grid in California or anywhere else in the country. Hmm. So it's it's really I I, I take the over under bet on what will happen by 2035. I think the law will be uh, quietly reversed, ignored, you know, novated, or it'll become the hottest uh, used car market in the world. Yeah. Used car prices will escalate, and jobs for reco- you know conventional car repairs will soar because you you simply can't do what they're proposing.
2: But Mark, behind the electricity sources yeah. are is fossil fuels. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's natural gas, oil and coal. So let me read for our listeners. Uh, You say this in your latest article. After at least five trillion dollars in spending over the past two decades, hydrocarbons still supply 84 percent of global energy, down just two percentage points. At this pace, it would take 84 years to end fossil fuels for context burning wood still supplies more than five times the amount of global energy that all the world's solar panels. Meanwhile, the total demand for hydrocarbons has risen over those 20 years by an almost equal to six times the entire oil output of Saudi Arabia. In other words, we've spent $5 trillion for what? Fossil fuels still dominate, and they're going to dominate forever. So I don't understand this Green New Deal. I don't understand this transition.
6: Well, there isn't one. That's the whole point of what I was writing. The idea that we're in a rapid transition or can even transition away from using hydrocarbons, in fact, is it's not, it's not evident in the facts. The facts are, as you outlined from the – these are just data. You know, we haven't significantly reduced the percentage role of hydrocarbons, but more importantly, absolute demand for hydrocarbons is rising in this year because of what's going on in the world, coal use has soared by an amount greater than probably any time in 50 years. It's a stunning increase in capitulation, and Europe is capitulating. Here's Germany uh, increasing its coal burn. Citizens are lining up to buy wood and wood-fired stoves, Mm. and they finally have a crash program to build natural gas import terminals in Germany because if you can't eliminate Russian energy from your supply system, and Russia's total supply is 10% of the world's hydrocarbons, you can't get rid of the 10%. How in the world do people really think they're going to get rid of the 100%? It really, yeah, it's the, it defies imagination. It's, a, it's the most expensive virtual signaling that the world has probably ever done.
2: So we've just signed legislation that's going <laughs> to give another $400 billion in various tax credits to renewable fuel sources and EVs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. What yeah. good is that going to do? Well, frankly,
6: uh, except for the kleptocrats in the in the supply chain of money, uh, it will do no good for the, the country. It'll do mm-hmm. it'll do the opposite of good for the country. In fact, I would uh, bet, and we haven't seen the analysis yet, that the imputed cost, because this is a direct spending of almost 400 billion, I'll bet we'll find out that the actual cost of this legislation is closer to a trillion dollars to mm-hmm. the economy. Wow. And what it's doing is is anti-productivity. The goal in productivity is, you know better than I do is more or better output with less input of dollars and labor. So we're going to increase the costs of producing energy and not get more energy. This this is not this is very bad for the country. I can only hope that the next Congress will uh defund just you know leave 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 the shadow of the shell of the bill in place but just defund it so we don't squander
2: the money. The other side though with this battery craze, EVs, batteries we're helping China. I mean, China, yeah. ha- right? China yeah. has the resource inputs right. for the right. battery-driven economy. Right. Well, it, yes. I mean, why are we doing that? Well, I think I think. Well, setting aside
6: a Machiavellian, you know, cynical theories about why, but what maybe the one answer is ignorance that most people, including policymakers, aren't aware of the fact. That when it comes to the materials, the minerals, the refined materials, the refined lithium, the refined copper, the refined cobalt, the refining process, China utterly dominates for energy minerals. In fact, their dominance in that is twice OPEC's dominance in oil markets. Hmm. Maybe they just didn't notice. They didn't know. Um, But sure, if we build electric cars here, if we build battery factories here, you can do that. But this would be the equivalent of uh, building assembly plants for cars, but having all the parts, components, and steel and engines made in China. But you could assemble them here.
2: You know, this is not good. But you've written too that even these wind and solar farms are going to cause carbon emissions. They're <laughs> also they're also going to disrupt uh, the environment. I mean, there's you know these as I understand it, these wind farms. Uh, you know, you're not putting up a, a, a wooden windmill like you did in the 16th <laughs> century in Amsterdam, right? No, These are no. gigantic undertakings, cause hundreds of acres, and you're going to have to dig up everything. And the power used for that is going to come from, from fossils.
6: Exactly. Well, so the inconvenient fact of in this is that to deliver the same unit of energy to society, the same mile of driving, same unit of heat to a house or to heat up silicon to make semiconductors, that you use a thousand percent more materials and minerals to deliver the same unit of energy if you switch from hydrocarbons to wind, solar, and batteries. A thousand percent increase in steel, copper, cobalt, lithium, manganese. So you have to ask yourself not only where does it come from, which is not here, and what does it cost, and its environmental impacts. But to your point, all these minerals are uh, extracted from the earth with big, heavy. Diesel burning machines. Steel is made with metallurgical coal. The fiberglass blades and the in wind turbines are made from uh, you know hydrocarbons and fabricated using hydrocarbons. In fact, a single small wind farm has more plastic made from hydrocarbons. A single small wind farm more plastic than those blades that can't be recycled than all the world's plastic straws combined.
2: I think these greenies have this romantic. 17th century or 16th century vision. This is where they want us to go. I mean, I think they're Luddites. Uh, I think they're anti-progress. I mean, Mark, if you do this sensibly, wouldn't you let a thousand flowers bloom? We just oh, need sure. more energy, just more energy of all kinds. Isn't that the way to go? is exactly the way to go, and I've written this and said it many times. This is,
6: an, this is to use the Obama line. He was right, even though he was probably politically cynical. You need all of the above because of the quantity of energy society needs. And cheap energy creates wealth. For everybody in the world, we need more cheap energy. And there will be lots more windmills. They have a big role, lots more electric cars. They're nice. But Mm -hmm. quit subsidizing them. They'll get cheaper in time. Just be patient. Just be patient. We're not being patient. It's silly. It it is a Luddite dream. A lot of them are honest about the fact they would like to have fewer people that are poorer. They've written as much.
2: Yeah, I, I, that's I think right. that's
6: profoundly immoral, profoundly immoral.
2: Yeah, I think you're 100% right. Uh, they're basically anti-growth uh, type people. So you, <laughs> why won't they open up? I mean, if you want – look, I have nothing against EVs. I admire Elon Musk. I, I think he's a oh. really cool guy. But the point yeah. is why you, you have to allow us to uh, mine – Our resources, I mean, we have a lot of cobalt and lithium and all that stuff, don't we? We do. In fact, the United States is an
6: extraordinarily uh, rich province, so to speak, in geological terms, of all kinds of minerals. We just have a regulatory environment hostile to it. I I admire Elon Musk as well. In fact, he said recently, because he knows about the mining supply chain, I loved when he said, I, Elon Musk, might have to get into the mining business. I hope he does. He'd shake it up. And bring it back here. Lobby for mines in America.
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, you just have to open the spigots. And yeah, I agree. The, yeah. Right? But the greenies want to close the spigots. And, and closing the all spigots, all will, spigots will... Huh? Yeah. Open that all means, the
6: spigots. The mining spigots, right. the oil and gas spigots. That's I agree. Right.
2: That's right. Open all the spigots. If you close all the spigots like they want, it'll be a catastrophe. I mean, really, they'll destroy the economy.
6: Well, it will because the, the the singularly most impressive achievement of humanity has been the pushing of the cost of food and fuel into the background of our economy. Used to be, the eighty percent of an economy was tied up in buying food and fuel. In a modern economy, it's like fifteen percent. Oh, that's a Their great path point. puts us puts us back into prehistory, back into the Middle Ages. Frankly, that's it'd be a terrible.
2: Fabulous point. That's a terrific point. Anyway. Mark Mills, Manhattan Institute, climate expert. Thank you, Mark. Uh, We've got to get you on the TV show again to walk through all this stuff. I'll be back from vacation on Tuesday. Folks, we're going to take a very quick break, and then I'm going to have to have a look at the whole business about Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago and the argument about documents and what knows. Well, Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst, is going to come on the show. Let me take a quick break here. We'll get to Greg Jarrett on the other side.
1: From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm afraid I do have to talk a little bit about this um, Mar-a-Lago documents, uh, overdue library books. I'm not sure what's going on. I've been on vacation a week. I read a couple of headlines. Anyway, you're going to bring in my pal Greg Jarrett. Fox News, legal analyst and commentator. And by the way, he had a great book out a while back, The Russia Hoax, The Illicit Scheme to Clear Hillary Clinton and Frame Donald Trump. That was a New York Times bestseller. Greg, um, I tried to follow some of this, but I get a little bored. I don't know where it's going. you got to help us. I will say this to start out. <clears throat> Alan Dershowitz is saying this. I think a lot of people are missing the point. It's not what's in the inventory. That won't get Trump in trouble. It's what's not in the inventory. If the inventory can demonstrate there are documents that are missing, destroyed, hidden, moved, that would help make the obstruction case, which is the only case that would survive. What do you make of that, Greg Jarrett?
6: Well, uh, first of all, the files are cover sheets, uh, which indicate that at one point in time, and we don't know when, Uh, Certain documents were classified. They may well have been declassified. They may well have been previously handed over to the National Archives in the trench of of documents that that Trump gave the National Archives box loads. So, you know, we just don't know. Um, But I will say this. The obstruction claim is absurd. Uh, It requires under the law proof that a person acts corruptly. What does that mean? Well, the U.S. Supreme Court said that's ill-defined. We're going to define it. So they, they said you must prove that somebody acted with immoral, depraved, or evil intent. Mm. Well, so far I haven't seen any evidence of that. I mean, if Trump believed he had a right of access and possession under the Presidential Records Act, and that's never been litigated, then he harbored no uh, immoral, depraved, evil, corrupt intent, and he obstructed nothing. So, you know, Dershowitz is right to the extent that, you know, we don't know what were, what was in the files. And, in fact, Garland doesn't know that. He he contradicted himself. He claims the, governor, the government records uh, were, quote-unquote, likely removed from the storage room. That's the core of his obstruction claim. But then he admits the government was never permitted to even look at the documents in that room. So how in the world, Larry, do they know that the government records were mo- removed and thus obstruction? Uh, they don't know. They're simply guessing.
2: Yeah. So why can't – so look, um, everyone's examining the list of the documents themselves. Uh, maybe there will be this master to oversee it. But <laughs> if, the, if the archives – National Archives want this stuff and Trump says, okay – Here's the stuff you want. Why can't that be settled? And we call an end to this madness.
6: It could be settled. Uh, Forty-five years ago, Congress passed a law, the Presidential Records Act. And, you know, as is typical of Congress, it is not the most artfully crafted or worded uh, piece of legislation. And as a consequence for 45 years, there's been this tug of war between former presidents of the National Archives as to, you know, who gets what. Uh, normally it's it's handled amicably, but because the former president's last name is is Trump, there's a different a standard. This should have been, you're right, uh, Larry, it should have been resolved with a civil enforcement proceeding pursuant to the earlier subpoena. You've got a court, you let a judge decide Uh, What does this uh, Presidential Records Act mean? Who gets what? Uh, That's a civil enforcement proceeding. Instead, Attorney General Merrick Garland decided he was going to turn this into a criminal affair, weaponize the DOJ and the FBI, uh, which appears to me to be uh, an, an effort to pursue his boss's political adversaries. And, you know, Joe Biden made it clear That, you know, his enemy is Trump and anybody who supports him, which is arguably half uh, of America. Uh, And, you know, that to me is an unconscionable abuse of power uh, by Merrick Garland.
2: Yeah. This is all about keeping Trump off the ballot. No question. That's been my take from day one. But these legal things, I don't know. What does this master business mean?
6: Well, it's simply somebody who's neutral. You know, Merrick Garland doesn't want an independent uh, uh, individual to look at these documents, to uh, review and segregate them, Uh, you know, dividing here. Give these back to Donald Trump. They're his. They're protected by attorney-client privilege and so forth. Um, Garland wants someone employed uh, under uh, himself. Yeah. At the Department of Justice, and I think he, you know, he sort of fears that some of the documents that he wants uh, that are ir- irrelevant will be handed back. Um, you know, the the judge asked the correct question the other day: "What's the harm of a special master?" Well, right. that's an excellent question, and the answer by Merrick Garland's lawyers was predictable and lame. Oh, gee, it'll interfere with our investigation of the president. First of all, it won't. (laughs) But it's also hypocritical and ironic coming from Merrick Garland, uh, whose own FBI halted and interfered with the Hunter Biden probe, according to a cavalcade of whistleblowers, shutting it down and spreading the lie that the laptop was Russian disinformation. Uh, I think the judge is inclined to appoint the special master. But it won't get to the core questions of was this a lawless search? Were these really classified documents or declassified? And did the president have a right of access?
2: Did um, you think, uh, speculate for me, Do do you honestly think that Garland is going to bring an obstruction of justice indictment against Trump?
6: Oh, I think in the end it'll be a political decision which is the wrong thing to do you you know you should make a decision based on the law and if he looks at the law uh he he would be foolish to bring such a case um you know the three criminal statutes he cited in the warrant they they all require specific intent Mm. use the terms knowingly deliberately willingly willful yeah uh, you know the The government doesn't have any evidence of that. All right, maybe Trump was sloppy or negligent in handling documents. um, But if he thought he was entitled to keep these, that's not criminal intent. And the same is true of classified documents. If he believed he had validly declassified them, there's no criminal intent. So it would be foolish and, in fact, idiotic to bring a case against Trump based on the law itself. But in the end, I think it will be a political decision.
2: I mean, I thought the release, the leak, uh, Greg, of of the documents, you know, with the cover sheets saying, you know, whatever uh, classified or top secret. Look, I I lived for three years with those sheets. I would get them all the time. Then you, you know, you turn the page and you start reading it. Most of that stuff you would have found in this morning's newspaper. But we don't know what's in those documents, and we don't know what was classified and declassified. I mean. For him to leak that picture was an incredible dirty pool.
6: Well, it really was. Uh, It was gratuitous. It was prejudicial. (laughs) And it it, it demonstrates, as I said in a recent column, how ruthless and malignant Merrick Garland has become. There was no need for the photo uh, to be shown. It was inflammatory, which is exactly why they put it there. They knew the media would run with their hair on fire. Uh, which is precisely uh, what they did. And, you know, it was intended to prejudice the case. And, you know, including on the right-hand side of the photo, the Time magazine photos, that was meant to mock Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was disappointed the federal judge didn't just outright dress down Garland and his prosecutors for these obviously prejudicial antics.
2: You know, the other thing, Greg, just – you mentioned the whistleblowers here in the last minute. Uh, these stories about whistleblowers that showed the FBI was telling the social media platforms, uh, you know, don't put out the Hunter Biden laptop, uh, laptop stuff before the election. And some polls are showing that if people had known about the Hunter Biden laptop, they wouldn't have voted for uh, Biden. I mean, and quickly, that's dirty pool also.
6: It's also a dirty pool for Garland to immediately come out and say, uh, you are not allowed to talk to senators or congressmen. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, they are. Uh, under the uh, Whistleblower Protection Act, they are directed, if uh-huh. they know of corrupt activity, to go to a senator or a congressman to report it. And so Merrick Garland's order was itself. All
2: right. Thank you, Greg Jarrett. We appreciate it. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, some stock market work. Stock market next.
1: Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We have some stock market work to do. And I've got to figure out who the guests are. Who are the guests? I lost my guest sheet. I think it's Jim Urio, as I recall. You can whisper, feel free to whisper. All right, Jim LeCamp. I lost my whole sheet. Isn't that terrible? Anyway, um, welcome back. I'm Larry <laughs> this is this, We're going to do some stock market work. We have uh, Jim Urio and we have Jim LeCamp. And uh, we have a stock market that got whacked pretty hard. And part of it was uh, rising interest rates. And part of it is a very tough Fed, and part of it is, um, I don't know, it was a pretty strong jobs report, which I guess means the Fed's going to have to be tougher. They're going to raise 75 basis points in a couple of weeks. Anyway, pardon me, fellas. I lost my sheet, so I didn't know who you were, but now I know who you are. Jim Urio, Chicago's greatest restaurateur, and Jim LeCamp of Morgan Stanley. I know that by heart. Let me begin with you, Jim Urio. What did you think of the employment report, and what does that mean for the Federal Reserve, and what does that mean for interest rates, and what does that mean for stocks? How about that? First of all, you can just let me give my own
7: intro. I'll give a great intro for myself. I got reason. it all planned out. You mentioned the number yesterday, and you mentioned the Fed. A couple of weeks ago, Neil Cash Carey gave you know, pretty much a tell when he, it sounded like he was applauding <laughs> Weakness in the stock market after some renewed hawkish comments by the chairman. So I don't think that I, I think that they don't believe they're afraid of a stock market. Um, One more implosion. I I think that they're crazy. I think that they will buckle under that if it actually happens. It's one thing. uh, Talking tough is another thing that actually happens. So the number yesterday, it was a a pretty good number for stocks, particularly because the wage component of it had not grown. I I have, have to think that it made the notion of a soft landing a little more plausible. I still think it's unlikely. But it made it a little more plausible. And I think the real move in the stock market that that was fundamental after the number was positive, and that was fine. But the reality of it is is that we're not through this massive year-long adjustment to higher rates, and there are plenty of people on the sidelines who said to themselves, if I can just get one more pop, I'm going to sell out of some risk. And most people don't do that when it happens, but some do, and that's why we couldn't keep the rally yesterday. I think the stock market is at a a put-up-or-shut-up spot. With 3,900 in the S&P, which I know we talk about technicals sometimes on this um, on this show, and so some people respect them, some people think they're voodoo. I know you respect them. It was a .618 retracement Mm is the 3,900, and if it if it holds, I think we're fine going into the fall, which is what I've thought the whole time.
2: So you're kind of bullish. Is that what I'm Uh hearing?
7: Yeah, kind of bullish into the fall. Remember, I think I, I had said before that I thought by end of September that they were going to move slightly more to neutral. I'm pushing that back a little. I was obviously wrong about that. But in, if, they, if they move to neutral in October, which I think the inflation numbers are coming down, uh, it seems to me that, you know, even gas and, gas and oil is a little more tame than it was before. I think the worry is going to be less. Um, you know, I hope that makes sense.
2: Jim, you're Jim, you're out. Jim LeCamp, first of all, let me get this right. Mr. Urio is director of TJM Institutional Services, and Mr. LeCamp is a senior VP investments at Morgan Stanley. Okay, I finally found my sheets. Um, Jim LeCamp, Fed's going to do 75. hmm All right. They're also going to, I don't know whether they do 75s, but there'll be a 50 in the next meeting and a 50 in the meeting after that. I mean, that's my view. Inflation may be, it's coming down, it's a little softer, but their target is two. And if you read, uh, or heard, but if you read uh, Jay Powell's speech at Jackson Hole, they are going to go to two. Two is price stability. They've come around to that point of view. It was a very clear, terse, brief statement that Powell made. But that's where the FOMC is. I mean, that's where it is. You're going to get, you know, there's always a lot of chatter. uh, Kashkari, who I don't think much of. But can the market withstand that? Can the economy withstand that?
0: The economy is already not withstanding that. I I get the jobs number was okay. But if you look at real wages, after inflation, uh, people have less money to spend, and, and the rate of this past um, uh, 20, 25 days or so at which economic data has been coming in weaker than expected has been a, a very, very high level. In fact, we haven't seen it this high since the financial crisis in terms of diffusion indices. And not only that, valuations aren't compelling. And um, I do agree with Jim Urio that we ought to use technical analysis, but there's other ways to look at charts. And one way to look at a chart is we couldn't break through the 200-day moving average, and now we went down to the 50, and we've undercut the 50-day moving average. So now we're going to look at the trend line that started from the lows. That's going to be our next line in the sand, and then a retest. I think those are both more likely – Than a rally from here. Let's not forget September and October, uh, early October anyway, are historically very choppy, particularly in midterm election years. And while many measures of inflation have come down to be sure, it hasn't made houses affordable yet with mortgage rates rising. So the housing market's in decline and energy prices haven't come down that much. And that late on Friday, one of the things that reversed the market was news about the Nord Stream uh, pipeline and and Russia shutting it down. So we haven't solved a lot of these things yet, and valuations aren't compelling. We don't have a double bottom. We haven't seen a spike in the VIX. I don't see a bottom yet. I think what we had was a bear market rally, and now we're probably heading for a retest, at 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 which point I'd be interested. If we do get to that retest level or even 3700 or so, I'm going to start building my shopping list, but I think we're too early yet outside of some energy areas.
2: Average hourly earnings up four-tenths in August, up 6.1 the last 12 months. Um, the CPI in August will, I'll say, year-on-year year come down to 8%. The uh, Cleveland Feds uh, mean trim they take you know they chop off the top uh, and the bottom prices uh, that thing is at seven percent um, core inflation is i don 't know close to six percent, so real wages are still falling, and as you note, the housing market is definitely in recession by the way, factory orders fell uh, that just came out. Uh, ISMs are mixed. The PMIs are worse than the ISMs. I don't know which is a better index.
0: And they're in decline. I mean, just look at the trends. They're in sharp decline.
2: That's right. Um, Now, on the other hand, uh, Mr. Urio, I think um, the third quarter GDP is going to be positive, uh, unlike the two declines we saw in the first half of the year. Uh, Let's see. The the, uh, GDP tracker from the Atlanta Fed is, is what, 2.6 now? Let me look at this. Hold on a second. Here it comes. Yeah, 2.6, but that's not including the employment numbers, and um, we don't know what production is going to look like. Anyway, you're going to have a positive number. I'm saying to you, Jim, I think that you get a positive Q3, the Federal Reserve uh, is, you know, they're going to come at it. They're going to come at it, whether that's the right way or the wrong way. There's no help from fiscal policy. There's no help from taxes and regulations and spending. So the Fed's going to be there. They're the lone ranger. They're going to keep tightening throughout the rest of the year. Isn't that going to damage multiples, and isn't that going to damage stocks?
8: If you're
7: right, and they keep – you know, Goldman came out and said, what did they say, 75, then 50, 50, then 25 or something, which I don't agree with. And, again, I think – When I look at other people's estimates, I think I am extreme. I understand that completely. But one thing dawned on me when you guys were talking, because I agreed with everything Jim LeCamp said about the actual economic picture. And I'll throw in that something from a broader perspective, too, is that if you look at the last 30 years, you know that our economy at every level needs rates held inorganically low. To perform. It's just we've gotten to a point where the regulatory structure, the tax structure is almost punitive on small business. And we could have a whole show on that. They cannot survive if rates go too high. That being said, um, the question just becomes if the Fed's going to have the guts. If we have that down move and we test those lows again, and it's unusual, by the way, to have a, a bear market move to come back over halfway from that, as we did this summer, and then to make new lows. I like a lot what Jim was saying about going back to those old lows, which are 36 and change, whichever, Jim, I think, right? Um, I have yeah. no problem with that, by the way. But if we start to plunge below that, that's when I think uh, the Fed cracks. It's, again, it's one thing to talk about being able to face down declining asset prices. It's another thing to actually see it happen.
2: They're not going to be guided by the stock market.
7: You don't. Well, what do you mean? There's got to be a level that they're guided by the stock market. So We're what you're saying near. is it's
2: 40 percent, right? We're nowhere near. You're down uh, as you guys look. You're down 18 percent. I'm going to call it 17.7 percent year to date uh, on the S&P 500. Um, the Dow Jones is at Uh Yes, they. Uh, you got a long ways to go. I mean, I think that was one of the messages that that Powell was sending. That there's going to be pain, he said. Now he,
7: ex- very clearly, I agree. He said that yes. He yes.
2: explicitly was referring to the economy. Implicitly, is referring to the stock market. They will by, not by be which? guided by stocks, Jim LeCamp. That's my take.
0: Yeah, but Look, we we're we're leaving out. Uh, we've all left out a very important detail, and that is the impact of uh, monopoly money on the inflation numbers and the biden administration is all about monopoly money and we all know that if the banker keeps adding money into a monopoly game that may help the price of boardwalk and park place but if you're traveling around that board and you land on boardwalk and park place you're in trouble and that's what's happening in the economy and with the student loans debacle You're adding a lot of monopoly money back into the uh, economy. That's going to keep the inflation numbers higher than the Fed wants, and that may put the the Fed in a really awkward position of maybe wanting to buckle. And I agree with Jim Urio. This is not a Fed that has a strong backbone and strong knees. I don't believe that at all, and I think that they are very capable of buckling. But if the inflation numbers – because of this latest round of monopoly money, remain too hot. That's going to put them in a really tough position.
2: You know, you're you could be looking at a double dip recession. Meaning Agreed. the first half was recessionary, two two negative quarters. That may or may not be perfect, but that's what I'm reading it as. You're going to up up positive number in the third quarter could be two and a half percent, maybe more. I don't know. Uh, but you're going to go back down either in the fourth quarter or next year, a double-dip recession. They are not going to be guided by the stock market. That's Those are the two facts. I don't know, by the way. We will see. You may get another soft month in the CPI, but I don't know that inflation has played out because underlying inflation. Here's a, here's a number. Uh, non-financial corporate prices. Non-financial Corporate prices are up 10% year on year, and the PPI is still very strong, and food prices are very strong. So I am quite skeptical that the inflation scare is over, Jim McCampley. Jim Actually, well, I'll put this I, out I'd, to
0: yeah, you've got energy that's still a major issue. I, you know, Down here in Texas, as as everybody knows, we have a big energy industry. And I talk to people every day, and they still are having a hard time getting workers out there. They're still having a hard time getting equipment out there. And even if they do get it, the will of the majors to pour CapEx onto these higher prices is not there like it has been in the past. Yep. And, yep. And, and so I don't know. Yeah. That we are prepared uh, on an energy level, and without fixing energy, you're not going to fix the CPI. It's ingrained into every single thing we do in this economy, and so I, I think uh, again they've got a dual problem on their hands. They got to fix energy prices, and then they got to solve uh, what they're doing with all the monopoly money being thrown around in the economy. Yep. So it's a, it's it's going to be me, very very tricky. Let me take. And, and cr- by the way. You've got your own problem you've created with a nine trillion dollar balance sheet that you've never tried to unwind before. Hey,
2: let me let me take a quick break. Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services. Jim LeCamp, senior VP Investments at Morgan Stanley. I'm Larry Kudlow. We come back. I want to talk about the interest rate outlook, the market interest rate outlook, because uh, the ten years really popped up a lot. I'm Kudlow. We'll
1: be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back,
2: folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here talking stocks with Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, Chicago's leading restaurateur, and Jim LeCamp, senior BP investments at Morgan Stanley. Jim Urio, where are interest rates going to go? The 10-year note is 319. What was the Was the low on that 250, the recent low on that?
7: Yeah, 250, it seemed, uh, right around there. And so, I think yeah. it, it it heads back to three and a half. And I think what the 10 years is telling us right now, and Jim LeCamp mentioned it, I think it is a commentary on the fact that the federal government just in the last three weeks has passed or talked about passing two separate highly inflationary bills, mm. one of them – ironically called the Inflation Reduction Act, but I think is hysterical. But the other one is a commentary on what they say. And that's why the break-evens have gone from, you know, 245 to 265 at a high, and I think 10-year yields are going higher. But it's also a commentary on quantitative tightening, letting the balance sheet roll off as well. And I agree. When I heard some of the stuff that Jim LeCamp said, I agree hundred percent. The federal government and the Fed are fighting a battle right now and the federal government seems to be trying to unwind every every attempt that the Fed makes to try to rein in inflation. I still am going to subscribe to that thirty nine hundred level in the S and Ps and if it holds over the week and feels like it's building a base, I'm gonna stick with my mildly bullish thesis and fill in the fundamentals later, I guess.
2: Well, no, I get it. Uh it's all very tricky. Jim LeCamp, what's your take on rates? I'm curious.
0: Uh, I would love to see the rates go back to the high of 3.5 or so and peak there. That, that way you would have a double top in rates, and it might send a message if they start coming back down from that level uh, that that's, that's where the rates are going to peak. Uh, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for the charts, uh, like Jim uh, Uriel said, and, and the same thing on the market. I'm, I'm going to wait for the market to settle down, for bases to build on stocks, for the wild emotional swings to calm down, it's really hard to trade in an environment like that. Uh, we've got some exposure to energy, we've got some hedges on, uh, but um, I, I think we got to wait. There, there's every, there's plenty of evidence the economy is slowing down. At the same time, there's plenty of evidence that would lead us to believe that inflation is going to stick around. That spells stagflation. That's not a good picture for stocks and so i think investors have to be patient here and i do think their opportunity will come uh, the, the, uh yeah we're going to have an election uh post november the historical tendencies are very strong i think we're going to have opportunity here but uh, yeah the forecast the short uh, forecast calls for pain
2: jim urio what's the commodities outlook Um, The the commodities came down
7: quite a bit because more market position than anything else, because I don't think fundamentally – things changed very much the oil one let's specifically look at the oil one which I think is fascinating that because people called me out because I said when they were releasing the SPR as the market was going higher and uh, there was you know tailwinds for oil across the board I said it wouldn't affect things very much but then all of a sudden when market position turns and people are heading to the exits and there was some demand destruction but not huge there was more markets then selling the SPR is actually fueling it you're pushing something that's already moving in that direction So I think the fact that that crude is in the the mid-low 80s right now and they're still selling the SPR is – it could be criminal because then you have to say to yourself what happens when they have to build it back. But anyway, so I think that the sell-off we've seen across the commodity spectrum was more, um, you know, positioning and, uh, you know, the dollar had kind of peaked. But uh, so we're curious to see what the dollar happens in in the next couple weeks. But uh, I I think oil could could rally from here, but I'd like to see it get above 90 first.
2: And Jim LeCamp, is there, you mentioned this election, uh, is there an election impact? I mean, you have uh, a lot of mainstream media people talking about a Democratic comeback. Um, I I think most of them, even the liberal polls, still give the House to the Republicans. The Senate, however, looks like a toss-up, according to many of these mainstream polls. Is the election... Having any impact? Is the cavalry on the way? Are the socialist policies going to be stopped? That might be very good for the stock market, or is it not a factor?
0: I think it would be a factor if you get a Republican uh, victory uh, in the House, and, and particularly if you get a victory on both sides. Uh, that that would that would preclude that would that would suggest that these um, so-called inflation reduction Act uh, type bills uh, would be very, very difficult to get through anymore. And it, it would at least send the message to Wall Street that maybe the era of uh, hyper money printing will uh, abate. Uh, you know, it's, it's Washington still, right? So it's going to be money printing, no, no matter who's in power. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, but uh, it, it's a matter of, of, of degrees, right?
2: Jim urio And Jim LeCamp. Gentlemen, thank you ever so much. Folks, Money in Politics next. Liz Peek and Steve Moore. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back.
1: Back to the Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, you can join us during the week. Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow, four to five p.m. every single day. I've been on vacation. I will return on Tuesday after Labor Day. And here we're going to talk some money and politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity. His latest book is entitled GovZilla. All right, kids, welcome back. Uh, thank you both for helping out last Saturday. I appreciate it very much. <laughs> Give me a little, a, little, a little time off. It's much appreciated. All right, I want to talk about this um, uh, Joe Biden's speeches. So let me get this right. MAGA Republicans, Republicans are all semi fascists they're a threat to democracy. I guess 74 million people, nearly half the country, at least nearly half the voters. Um, they're all a bunch of demons. They're undermining democracy. Liz Peak, I want to ask you what you thought about these speeches. Now, the, the weird thing is, and this is very <laughs> typical of Joe Biden, is he kind of walked it back yesterday, answering a question uh, on the fly at a newser. Um, he said, well, I didn't really mean it. So I don't know what he meant. But he did say it, and I want to know what you thought about that. Because I would say, like Dan Henniger wrote in the journal, um, no, it's not that we're semi-fascists, it's that you're a socialist. I I would take semi-fascism over socialism if you gave me that Hobson's choice. But what do you think about this, Liz?
9: Well, I I honestly think this was a big mistake by the president. Whatever likability he had when he ran for president, I think has really dissolved Polling shows us that people think he's more divisive than even his predecessor, more divisive. The country is more divided than it was before he became president. And my point would be this. He ran on healing the country, bringing us together for a reason. The reason is it's popular. People like it. Nobody really likes our politicians just slinging mud at each other, and that's kind of what we descended to now. So he was supposed to be the grown-up in the room, the person who was going to bring civility Back into our pol- political world, and boy, has he ever trashed that promise? I mean, I, I found it uh, despicable, honestly, and I find myself—and I think probably I'm not alone—more and more, really, really disliking this president. Um, you know, I-, I and I just can't imagine that that's good for him, his brand, and for democrats right now of course he's sailing out into the country promising to campaign for a lot of democrats who look to be in hiding it's not like they really want to campaign with them who would
2: steve moore um are you a semi-fascist are you a semi-socialist what are you exactly <laughs> hi larry welcome back uh look i'm going to correct you on one thing I, I
8: actually think the left is they are fascististic in the old meaning of the term which is that the government essentially, you know, runs the economy and the government dictates where capital flows. That's what fascism is. And I was just reading an article this morning. I don't know if you saw it about John Podesta. He's yeah. Have, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. He's going to have power over three hundred and thirty billion dollars. Yes. Not yes. million. Three hundred and thirty. John Podesta. He's just a political <laughs> hack. He doesn't <laughs> know anything about business. I mean, come on. And the article was me pointing out that the money's going to go to people like um, Tony Podesta. Oh, yeah, his
6: brother. <laughs> I
8: mean, this is really quite outrageous, actually. It used to be called graft, and that's what this is. It's, this isn't about saving the planet. <laughs> Come on, folks. This is about the left, the Democrats, getting money to their left-wing unions, their left-wing solar power companies, their left-wing battery companies, to the extent there are any in America. And it's really outrageous. It's going to lead to an incredible misallocation of capital. One of the reasons we're rich, Larry, as you know, is we have the most efficient capital system in the world. You know, we allocate capital to its highest use. You think that Podesta is going to do that? <laughs> well, can, can I can I offer
9: something on that? I think it's even more insidious than that. Yes, they're going to fund all kinds of ventures and companies and so forth. But what they've been doing is just creating these huge pockets of money for the transportation right. group, the climate group, and all these where right. they can go to communities, uh, go to the local community activists, and say, "We want to hire." You know, 200 people for our climate civilian corps, which I think is still a real thing, right? That that actually was in one of the bills, and and kind of sprinkle this money around in communities and towns and states where they need help. I mean, it's it is really a slush fund. The the Democrats with the uh, 1.9 trillion dollar American Rescue Plan, and then the one trillion dollar, 1.1 trillion dollar infrastructure, and then the Chips Plan, and now this new thing, the Inflation Reduction Act. It is – I would think literally they have their hands on, I don't know, half a trillion dollars that they can spend and sort of spew around however they want. And by the way, remember, they voted against having an overseer of this money, Mm -hmm. someone who actually was held accountable for it. I think this is an absolute horror, and Steve, you're right. It will lead not only to inefficiencies but massive corruption.
2: You know, I do – I must say that I know the Podestas – I've known them for, gosh, over 40 years. No, 50 years. <laughs> I, t- I mean, when I was a Democrat, I worked in a couple of campaigns in the early 70s. So I know Tony Podesta quite well. I know John Podesta quite well, oh. maybe a little less. Um, I, I, What do I want to say? While I violently disagree with their politics, they they're not bad people. They're, in fact, I, I rather like them, <laughs> but they're on the left side of the equation. I just want to say that because they are old friends or old acquaintances or old something. But I want to come back to the to the Biden right, Can I just want to interject one thing. I'm not
8: saying they're bad people. Yeah. I'm just saying that the, he, John Podesta isn't going to make a good. He no, has not have no right. idea how to spend $330 I, billion. I, that's I, why we have. You know, these venture capital firms and so on that that do this kind of thing and, and create the Googles and the Apples and, the you know, Amazons and the companies that, that become, you know, incredibly productive. We've spent $400 billion on solar energy and wind energy over the last 30 years, and they provide 5% of our power. It's yeah. the biggest waste of money in history.
2: Well, I had Mark Mills on earlier uh, uh. T- to your point. Uh, I just wanted to say that, about Podesta, because I don't, uh, I never take my politics uh, on a personal right. level. Yeah. That's all. But I have none in a long time. But, um, Steve, I want to ask both of you before we break. These Biden speeches um, might help Trump and might help the Republican Party. That's what a big mistake is to some extent for the reasons that Liz Peek mentioned before. Liz, I mean, it, it may wind up. Uh, helping the GOP. That's how bad those speeches were or, her, or how dumb they were. Well, I
9: think that's right. And the only people who are applauding them are really people on the far left. I mean, we've all seen that there's some CNN contributors even who are saying, wait a minute, you know, using the Marine Corps as these sort of nutcracker-like figures. Maybe that was Steve's phrase. Somebody I thought that was brilliant. They looked like little nutcracker figures behind the president. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Inappropriate. Uh, and, and the vitriol and so forth, I, I think whatever pretense this president had of being um, a healer-in-chief, and boy, has that gone out the window, but, but also it gives the uh, Republicans an opportunity, and boy, I hope they start seizing these opportunities to talk about what really are the threats to our democracy, like suppressing freedom of speech. That seems like a really essential Uh, Threat to our democracy and something we've never seen before at the level where it is now in America life. The threat the the threats against religious freedom, the threats against uh, free and fair elections when you are stuffing ballot boxes and trying to change the rules so that almost anybody, nobody can use a voter ID and so forth. Taking power away from the states, that is a threat to our democracy. We need to be able to articulate the response to this, because right now Democrats are on offense, they're doing it very well, uh, and Republicans are, <laughs> Republicans are right, but we're just not as aggressive in messaging it. I think we need to get out there.
2: Yeah, Steve, did you see the stuff... Um, uh, Rick Scott trashing Mitch McConnell, calling him a traitor because he's not. Oh, yeah. He wrote a column on this. um, Then there was a second, not a column, but a report in Breitbart. uh, You know, Scott said, well, why are these Republican leaders trashing Republican candidates? Right. And, And he's talking directly to Mitch. And, yeah. and, you know, Mitch has been bad mouthing a lot of the, yeah. the the Trumpsters, you know, uh, in yeah, Ohio, yeah. J.D. Right. Vance and Blake Masters in Arizona. Um, I interviewed both of those guys, by the way. I, I thought they're pretty good. I thought Blake Masters was particularly good, um, but I thought uh, J.D. was fine. In other words, it's an odd story to, you know, Liz is saying, why don't you know, Republicans need to be smarter about these things. We should go on the offense. I mean, I had John McLaughlin on the program earlier. Um, his own poll now shows 45-45. Rasmussen reports shows a five-point lead for GOP. But Republicans aren't being smart. They're not emphasizing these Biden issues that are so unpopular. Well, I didn't like – I mean, I, mean
8: I, I like Mitch McConnell. I think he's been a good minority leader. But I, I, did, I agree with Rick Scott that you don't – you know, if you're trying to win a football game, you don't – You know. You go to the press and say, "I we may win, but boy, do I have a terrible number of players on my team!" Right, um, and so right. that was really a, a, a gaffe. And I think uh, I don't know if he should have risked publicly chastise him, but no more. <laughs> I mean, listen, we're all on the same team. And you know, look, see, some of these candidates are fine candidates, maybe some of them aren't the the best we could have chosen. But uh, I, I still think you're looking at a at a red wave election, and. Mm-hmm. The problem right now as I see it is you do you really have three parties right now. you have the Democratic Party, which is a minority party in my opinion. you have the pro-trump Republican Party and then you have the anti-trump Republican Party and mm-hmm. the key for Republicans to win is to uh, you know make sure those two groups don't you know fight against each other to the benefit of Biden and Nancy Pelosi.
9: yeah and, yeah. and by the way, can I just add something? Dr. Oz, for example, Mehmet Oz, who I've met and I think is a terrific guy, he may not be the perfect choice for this role, but look at Fetterman. Let's talk about the other guy, right, (laughs) Right. in these races. I mean, holy crow. He's a crazy person. He's a crazy person. Everybody's all wound up about how terrible our candidates are. No, they're not. They're they're people who are trying to run for office against terrible candidates. Raphael Warnock, that's someone we're going to decide is better than Herschel
8: Walker? Give me a break. I mean, this is not that hard a
9: case to make.
8: Yeah, I mean, I would just add to that. I think you're exactly right that the Democrat. I mean, look, how hard is it to run against the Democrats? Every one of them has voted for every single policy that Biden has put in place that is bankrupting our country. I mean, you're right right about Warnock. You're right about uh, the candidate, the Democrat in um, Nevada, the Democrat in New Hampshire, the Democrat in Arizona. I mean, how do you stand up there and say, I voted for $4 trillion of spending and debt?
2: Yes. Well, Fetterman, Fetterman's a crazy person. I mean, yeah, he's right. so far left. Uh, Alex Priate sent me a thing. Uh, Fetterman has come out for legalizing heroin.
3: Okay, oh, good. how's that?
2: That's a terrific good. idea. And by the way, speaking of Mehmed Oz, I think Mehmed Oz has redeemed his crudité uh, because he saved a guy in the Metroliner. Did yeah. you read that story? yeah
9: that seems more important than than using a high word for vegetable, right yeah. i mean <laughs> and and by the way, banning fracking, which is what Fetterman wants to do in a state yeah. that has benefited enormously by it, that seems more important to me than using the word crudité. Yeah, i mean I we're getting we're trivializing these candidates in these elections, and this is not the time to do that and boy it's not the time for republicans to eat their own i just i find it really offensive
2: all right we'll take a quick break uh, liz peak fox news contributor steve moore freedom works committee to unleash prosperity i'm larry kudlow we'll be right back
1: now back to the larry kudlow show
2: welcome back folks we're talking money in politics with liz peak fox news contributor and steve moore freedom works and committee to unleash prosperity um liz you wrote a good column. Uh, Biden's student loan handout makes it official. Democrats have given up on middle America. And I want to add to it. I had uh, Phil Graham on, Senator Phil Graham on at the top of the show. And uh, he wrote a great op-ed piece. I've got a whole book coming out. How This is so interesting. All the Great Society Plus type subsidies uh, and transfer payments to the bottom 20% and actually the bottom 40%, have essentially stopped them from working.
3: Mm-hmm. And that
2: their, their participation rates, I mean, here's a stat for you. In the bottom 20% quintile, the participate, labor force participation rate has dropped in the last 35, 40 years from 68% to 36%. And that when you include the subsidies and taxes, their median incomes have grown so much that it's almost the same as the middle quintile. Mm
3: -hmm. And in
2: fact, the middle quintile has not gained at all. When you include subsidies and taxes, we've equalized, essentially, um, the bottom 60%. We've equalized them. So the idea of... We are paying them not to work, is annoying and angering the very middle class you're writing about. So it's student loans, it's food stamps, it's housing subsidies, uh, and uh, it's uh, health care and so forth. So this is a big political issue. There's a resentment growing, and they voted for Trump in 2016, and I wonder. I think that resentment's going to continue.
9: Well, I think that's right. And every time there's a new handout, and, and this one in particular was so egregious and so mm-hmm. wrongheaded uh, in that you're giving money to people whose lifetime earnings are going to be way above the national average, and, by the way, who signed up voluntarily and took on this debt. I mean, I've heard very little uh, talk about moral hazard and the fact that, you know, this completely sort of undermines whatever sense of commitment, particularly young people feel when they when they do take on loans and that that is not a good thing but i I think that this um, this particular bill this particular handout to uh, you know to people with uh, college debt was a very bad idea it, you know it isn 't that long ago that Democrats lost an election two thousand and sixteen because they lost uh, states where Hillary Clinton took for granted the votes of blue collar america and Democrats for those first couple of years really seemed eager to win back those votes. I think now they've just given up totally. But, by the way, on this labor thing, there's a uh, also a piece by Nicholas Eberstadt in the Wall Street Journal about those people basically not working. And I, I do think it's a tremendous problem for our country.
2: And, Steve, the um, middle class we're talking about that is resentful of all these folks getting paid not to work includes Hispanics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. a big group. And again, that could be an election decider.
8: Yeah, Hispanics have one of the highest labor force participation right. rates. So <laughs> Hispanics come into the country and they work, 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 work. Uh, it's it's not so un-American what we've done in the last 40 or 50 years. This is a land of opportunity. It's a land where you are pay, you are um, paid to work and, and we re- reward people for working. And we are now you know, rewarding people for not working. And that's a really – and you've made this point a hundred times, and it's so right. It's not just good for the country. It's good for – it's terrible when someone gets up in the morning and collects a welfare check. I mean, mm-hmm. you're not doing any – people who people who work are substantially happier than people who don't work. Right. Did you know that?
2: Yep. That's the Arthur Brooks argument going yeah, back yeah. a ways. It's a powerful, powerful – Argument, But on the political so, side so of this, doing,
8: so we're not doing a favor to people by keeping them <laughs> out of the workforce. I mean, everybody needs to have a have a reason to, you know, to per- participate and to be productive. And that that gives you a sense of self-worth.
2: So it wasn't it's not just the increases in um, unemployment assistance. It's all these programs. Yes. And the Bidens have lined up to expand all these programs. And the Bidens have also lined up, Steve, to prevent workfare from being reestablished. In other words, they continue to break... It did work with welfare, but they are continuing to break that link between work and federal assistance. And I don't know why Republicans don't make more of this. work. Workfare, its It's demoralizing to see that you have to pay the college tuition loan for an upper-class person. Or you see in the papers how much money is going to the bottom 20 or the bottom 40%, and you're not making any more money. Really, the gap is narrowed so much, you're hardly making any more money than the lower-income subsidized classes are making
8: yeah, you know, on the student, lo- on the student loan issue, pe- people don't just – they're not just opposed to it. They're angry about it. Right. People are quite angry. I mean, they hate this policy that this – you know, this kid who, who went six years to college and what was the uh, – G- John Belushi line, seven, seven good years of college <laughs> down the drain. Uh, but, you know – all of these kids have been kind of pampered. They they went. To, you know, a lot of people are, are paying their loans back. They went to Stanford. They went to Duke. They went yeah. to Northwestern. Okay. And and yeah, some of them, Larry, are making a hundred thousand dollars a year in income, and they're not paying
2: their loans back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Liz, <laughs> this should be a GOP issue. Yeah, like so sure. many issues. In other words, Republicans, you've got a couple months left. And I don't see them going on the offensive on all of these issues that we've talked about. And I don't get it. I don't understand. I think
9: I think a lot of people are afraid, Larry. They're afraid that they're going to be called out as racist if they talk about uh, people on the dole and so forth. Remember, I mean, you have to go back to Reagan era when all of a sudden it became true that more than half the country was taking more from the government than paying in. Do you remember Mm, that? And it was like a tremendous tipping point when Romney brought that up. He was eviscerated for it. People thought it was the most horrible, racist, uh, demeaning thing he could possibly say. Remember? I mean, that was literally what he said. And now I think Republicans are scared to say hey no it's it's not right that so few people are contributing and so many are taking but Mm. that's where we have come to and it's not it's not sustainable you talk about sustainability this is the most unsustainable thing there is
2: and steve last one for you i know this is your fave (laughs) no more gas cars gas powered cars but wait but wait a minute Wait a minute. For those of you that own electric vehicles, you're not allowed to recharge them. No more electricity for recharging. California, yeah. huh. the new utopia. We want electric cars, but we won't let you charge them. you have a quick thought on that? 30 seconds? Yeah, I'm in California right now. <laughs> people can't recharge their cars.
8: And they're telling people you can't set your thermostat uh, below 78 degrees, and it's 98 degrees here.
2: <laughs>
8: oh, God. That's the future.
2: <laughs> You're both wonderful. You're both going to help me. We're going to do a special uh, Fox Nation show on the unauthorized uh, version, unauthorized history of socialism. You're all going to be part of that, Steve Moore and Liz Peak. Thank you. I'm Cudlow, folks. It's been great. We will be back next weekend.